Downtown Productions in cooperation with Zone Radio presents Downtown, the podcast. From the historic Zone Radio studios, here's your host, Rich Kimball. And welcome in. It is indeed Downtown, the podcast, episode number 241, our first new episode of 2023. Rich Kimball, Kerry Haskell here with you. We're brought to you each week by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Well, we've got just one guest on the podcast this week, but when he's done as much as our guest has done, well, that's all you need is one. We're talking about the remarkably talented Paul Dooley. Can I list all his accomplishments? Well, not a chance, but but let's see. Uh, a cartoonist, stand-up comedian, improviser, a creator of the PBS children's program, The Electric Company, a renowned actor and also author. He's got a new memoir out called movie dad finding myself and my family on screen and off uh, that title also the title of paul dooley's one man show that looked at his career which has seen him play a whole lot of dads along the way perhaps best known as the dad in the wonderful film breaking away or or maybe as molly ringwald's father in 16 candles or more recently on curb your enthusiasm as larry david's father-in-law well, it's been a remarkable career. We had a chance to catch up with Paul. His wife, uh, the talented writer Winnie Holzman, makes an appearance as well. Here's Paul Dooley on Downtown. I just love the book. Uh, the last time we talked, uh, you were doing the one-man show, and uh, now yeah. we've, we've got a book. And I, I the is, book came out of the show. This might be the only. Is this the only good thing to come out of COVID? Is your book? So far, yeah. <laughs> well, the good thing is we got it and got rid of it. You know, we knocked it out with pills, and but there's still a little. It always keeps lingering on. You know, a little bit of COVID. You have a congestion in your head. You know, I just you know, got it before Christmas. I dodged it for all those years and got it about three weeks ago. Yeah, mm -hmm. we dodged it, and then we got it at Thanksgiving. We never had it before. Yeah, and we don't want it again. <laughs> no, absolutely not. Well, I, I love the book so much, and, and it's great, Paul, uh, to learn about your background, too, and your upbringing. And uh, well, as you point out in the book, it's safe to say that you did not inherit your sense of humor. No, not for my folks. Once my mother said something funny, and I felt like writing her a check. <laughs> I was 15, remember that, when I said, we, I've heard we have Indian blood. She said, that's what I... Here and I say, how much Indian blood you have? She's about a quart. <laughs> At fifteen, I knew that was a good joke. <laughs> that was about the only one she did. My dad never said anything funny. Well, he was a, he was a hardworking man. Uh, you didn't realize until you're old, you were older, everything that that went into what he had done in in building your family yeah. house basically from scratch. Yeah. And I thought every, you know, how you are when you're a kid, you thought everybody built his own house. I had no idea that was a big feat. My analyst explained it to me. He said he probably was high IQ. I'm wondering how when he had bad eyes, he can see a quarter of an inch and build a cabinet and make it plumb. <laughs> but he did it. Uh, something early in your life that you recount in the book struck me because when I was about Maybe eight or nine, I had a little crush on my teacher, a Miss Ziegler, and we came back from Christmas vacation, and now she was Mrs. Papadopoulos. And I, I maybe the same thing happened uh, with you and Miss Meadows. <laughs> yes. And she was great. She was 
and she was actually kind of tall, like you know, maybe five eleven or something, for uh, for an average woman that was a little tall, and uh, she you know she had Jane Russell, you know, she was really really built, curvy curvy lady. And because I was the only boy in the home ec class, uh, the, uh, yeah, you know, studying baking and all that stuff, I kidded myself that she, because she gave me a lot of attention as the only boy, and I thought she was in love with me. And imagine my surprise when uh, she married somebody. <laughs> Never got over it. Was it in high school, Paul, when your friend Jim introduced you to, to Buster Keaton and, and really the whole world of silent films? That's right. I was 15. He was a rich kid. He, his father owned a Greek restaurant. And uh, so they were well off. I, I wasn't. But we had great similar interests. But he really, I didn't know there was such a thing as mentor, but that's what it was. He just, uh, he saw I had the similar interest in things, you know, like theater and comedy and all that stuff. And we used to make our own silent movies. and They weren't very good, but they were fast. <laughs> under Frank, you know, he had a little eight millimeter camera and you could turn it on to a different speed. So he had made it go jerky, herky jerky, like they used to look. <laughs> that was happening in the beginning of films, even when it was in early in, in France, the idea that it could go fast. Um, everybody liked the idea that you wouldn't just see someone walking down the street, but they're like, you know, very, very fast. And that's what all silent movies kind of look like. Different speed of the camera. You mentioned in the book, and, and you mentioned it in interviews, I think when we talked with the last time, too, that you, you identified with Keaton because he was an everyman, and you could see yourself in, in his shoes in those circumstances. Yeah, his flat shoes. Slap shoes, <laughs> they used to call it. Uh, I never... When I made those silent movies with Jim... I had read somewhere that they took the heels off their shoes for some reason, all those comics, <laughs> sight, uh, even in vaudeville, it somehow made them funnier, they thought, that they had no heels on the <laughs> shoe. And uh, so I I got a pair of shoes at an Army-Navy store, high button, they were very high topped, took the heels off because that could be funny. <laughs> Slap shoes, that's what they called them. And you got to work with, with Keaton years later doing a commercial. Yeah, it was. I was thrilled to death. And I played a Keystone Cop. With, uh, who was, was it uh, Chuck McCann who was in that commercial too? There were some other pretty well-known actors who were in well, that. a guy act. named Barney Martin who became Seinfeld's oh, right, right. father, Barney Martin. I'll Did, tell you a quick story about Barney Martin. He was a New York City cop. And his beat was the... Back door, the stage door of the Ed Sullivan Theater. And uh, he just sort of protected the guests coming in and out that it wouldn't be uh, overcome by the people who wanted their autograph. All right, hold it, <laughs> hold it, folks, give them a break and maybe sign one autograph and leave. But it was a busy corner. And he got to know the people inside, you know, the staff and all that, just because he was at the door. And uh, at one point, they said, you look you look like you could be a good comedian yourself because he had a personality. So, well, I always has admired those people, but I never had any jobs like that. They said, would you mind coming in and understudy and, and stand in for Jackie Gleason? Because Jackie didn't want to rehearse. Right. 
and he really read the script once and knew it. He had that kind of a instant, uh, he knew all the lines. And he used to do the rehearsals because it, uh, Audrey Meadows and Art Carney needed it. They needed their lines so they could bail out Gleason from time to time. And you could see it if you watch Gleason once in a while. The way he would get around it if he didn't quite know the next line to say, oh, I'm going to the Chicago. Chicago, you know who's going to Chicago? I'm going to Chicago. You're going to see me out there in Chicago. Then somebody else came in. <laughs> I could see it when I watched him. But uh, it was great. And, of course, I got to know Carney when I did The Odd Couple. Right. Did you read the uh, the Dana Stevens book on, uh, yeah. on Keaton? That I was read great. every book, every book. Those in that in almost one month's time, the Dana Stevens and another book on Keaton came out. Right, right. And they were the most two thorough books. I've read a dozen books, but if you read a dozen, they all have the same information. Mm. <laughs> it's all maybe movies he made and almost nothing new in most of them. But I own all of them. And the, somebody opened a museum in Palm Springs called the Museum of American Humor, so I gave them all my books. I still have the one that Buster signed. It was the one he supposedly wrote, My Wonderful World of Slapstick. And he said, to Paul with love, Buster Keaton. Yeah. You, you I still say, have it right in, right in my bookcase. You say that he, in many ways, became a, a surrogate father for you. Was it that that combination of his stone-faced persona and your dad's inability to show emotion that, that led you to, I think you've called it, to underplay a lot of your acting? To be, I, as a kid, of course, I made my father my role model, and if he didn't smile, I didn't smile. Mm. So I kind of acted the way I, I, I grew up the way I did because of the way he was. I was a little bit of a version of him. And almost all the parts I played, there's a little bit of him in there. A lot of times I have those grumpy, grumpy fathers, and even when I'm insulting my son and breaking away, get him out of here. You know, <laughs> but you write very, very poignantly about that and how you you realized in in shooting that that emotional scene with Dennis Christopher that uh, it was it was you like, playing your dad. And who was I? Who was my dad hugging? It had to be me. Yeah, it's quite an interesting, interesting thing there in that scene. It's full of emotion, easy to play. You write uh, very openly, Paul, about uh, what therapy has done for you over the years. Yeah. Was that hard for somebody with your upbringing to to walk into that for the first time? Well, uh, I probably didn't. Uh, I probably didn't start therapy. I'd already been in New York about uh, almost ten years, but that, and when I got married. Uh, this woman said to me, uh, maybe we should go into therapy. We weren't even having any emotional problems, but I think she sensed something that we weren't clicking or something. There's something hidden, you know. I said, sure, if you want to, but I had no idea. I didn't understand even why I might want to. But because she suggested, we both went into an analysis. And uh, the doctor we met with said, well, I'll handle one of you, but I'll have a recommendation for a colleague. And I was with my guy for a long, long time because I'd go out, out of town to do jobs, come back and go right back into it. But uh, um, she kept firing her analyst. And I thought that when he got close to the truth, she hired, fired him and she walked out. When you got into something delicate that she couldn't talk about, some, you know, something. 
We're talking with Paul Dooley here on Downtown. Uh, Was it doing the Three Penny Opera when you became Paul Dooley? Yeah, just before we opened it, I found there's an actor on Broadway named Paul Brown, my original name. And of course, the union equity wouldn't allow you to use the name of an actor in the union before you. That's why Michael J. Fox was a J in there. That's you see an initial somewhere. That's what that was, (laughs) you know. Uh, you did a, a short-lived but a wonderful TV show uh, in the early 60s with a couple of friends of ours, uh, the Entertainers, with our friend John Davidson and a, and a dear friend of, of our show. And when I, I told her you were going to be coming on, she was so excited, the wonderful Treva <laughs> Silverman. Of course, I know her well. And just this very day, a half an hour ago, I'm boxing up my new book and sending it to her. Oh, that's wonderful. She lives out here. And uh, she came out here to do The Monkees. She's a writer. And uh, then she did uh, Mary Tyler Moore, one of the the first, you know, first two or three seasons. And she did a Dean Martin show and worked on the shows where she's like running sketches, basically. All right. Treva said, I need to ask you to do uh, some of that West Virginia accent that you worked so hard to get rid of. Well, uh, I'll give you a sample of what kind of words they use. A bush was called a bush, and a dish was called a dish, and uh, a flat tire would be a flat tar. And a guy, I got a job in a factory, and they said, go see Shorty Wilson. I said, who's Shorty Wilson? He's the guy who hires and bars. So he was the personnel manager. But it's a funny, I don't hear it anywhere like it isn't in Kentucky, it's not in Pennsylvania, but all around it or other. But Johnny Winters comes closest. He's a little ways over around Cincinnati from where I was born. And when he does his characters, they sound like a little like West Virginia. <laughs> We're church people. <laughs> and at West Virginia, one of your classmates, he was a few years older than you, uh, was the very talented Don Knotts. And you guys did some work That's together. Right. But that was at, yeah, college. Yeah. He lived there. That's his hometown. They have a Don Knotts Boulevard there. <laughs> Don was losing his sight near the end. And Peter Marshall, who I think came from West Virginia too, mm. set up a, a luncheon. I thought it was me and him. And I got there and it was me and him and Don Knotts. And Don came in and he couldn't see well. He was led by a pretty girl. It was his associate girlfriend or as a helper, but he sat down at the table and he, he said, he said, pay no attention to her. She's my seeing eye girlfriend. <laughs> and she was about 20, 25 years younger. And she ate with us and Mark Peter Marshall. We were about six people and we knew he doesn't see well, but at the end, when they brought the check, he said, let me get that. And, but he put his hands all over the place, you know, reaching for it and never knowing where it was making a joke out of his blindness. But I thought it was great. He's very funny. Oh, he was great. uh, I remember a a few, uh, he was a ventriloquist when he was 13. And I, once he showed me the dummy, took out of the attic and showed me a little bit of the act when he was an adolescent. And and the dummy and and, uh, Don had the same voice. Hello, Bobby. Hi, Don. <laughs> he only had, he just had the one voice. I used to call him up and say, 
uh, you say he'd say hello, and I'd say, "Okay, uh, it's Paul Dooley. Is Don there? This is Don." <laughs> Every time I called his house, I would did that. Uh, you did some work. He always had that high voice. <laughs> you did some work as a clown. I love the story in the book that you. Uh, it was an interesting transaction. You would loan a clown costume to Alan Alda, and then uh, later on, he helped you work on a routine for the Tonight Show with Jack Parr. That's right. And uh, he's a great guy, one of the nicest people I ever met in show business. You meet a lot of people, but he's really, truly a wonderful human being. You had such great success doing commercials uh, for, for yeah. many, many years. And uh, not sort just- sort of sidetracked me from caring about plays and TV shows, because most of the TV shows had already moved to California. It was a big wave when they all went out to California. And not too much, except later when the Cosby shows were done there. But there was a whole dearth of television shows that were made in New York. But I didn't mind. I mean, hell, I was a, I was a hit in the commercial business. I did, you know, in a year I might have um, 30 TV commercials on camera with my face and everybody saw me. So I became well-known on television commercials. And there, they lasted 60 seconds. I love going on your website and seeing the commercial that I, I remember from uh, when it first came out. I hadn't seen in years the wonderful Salada Tea commercial. That's great. <laughs> I, I got a prize that year as the spokesman of the year. And you read in the book, of course, Alan Alden and I were vying for the same commercial. Right. <laughs> they, they taped us both and... And then they decided who to use, and uh, I got the commercial, so out of tea, and he got mashed, but I'm not bitter. <laughs> Such great stuff with Paul Dooley. More of that conversation coming up after this quick word from Cross Insurance. Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With the network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit CrossInsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. downtown the podcast and more of our conversation with the great paul dooley talking about his life and his new memoir movie dad you got to uh, go on broadway mike nichols had seen you doing uh, improv work and decided to uh, make you a part of the too. cast of uh, of the odd couple and, and you ended up not just playing one of the the poker players but you filled in a lot for art carney i did i became his understudy and uh every both he and math would uh, understudies and I went on you know 30 times or something and um, the guy when I studied math though never went on once he was as strong as a bull he never missed a show and uh, Louis Zorich was his name yeah and Mathow had a tendency to um, to milk it a little bit at, at times and you uh, you kind of stood up to him uh, when you were when you were stepping in for Art Carney as Felix. Yeah, I did. He, uh, the stage manager said, 
the morale of the company is not good. I hear people ad-libbing. I hear people making up things, cutting lines, uh, overlapping, uh, you know, stealing each other's timing. I says, because Walter's screwing up the player. And I just, that was like the elephant in the room, and none of the other people backed me up, but I, I just told the truth. <laughs> he was a bit selfish, that's all. Well, and he had that, uh, I think I heard you talk about this uh, uh, in an interview, he had that that presentational style that that maybe owed something to the Yiddish theater that he would he would make these declarations out of his lines sometimes. That's right. He uh, when he was fifteen, I think in Yiddish he did the the Jewish theater, you know, down on Second Avenue. I had heard about it in one of his uh, interviews, and uh, he did a had a little bit of a grandiose style, you know, but he was described in a book that a man wrote about Art Carney as a hangdog look. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, the part of Oscar is written much better to get laughs than Felix. The jokes, he gave him real jokes, uh, Neil Simon did. He said, Felix wears his seatbelt in the drive-in movie. And they were all joke jokes. But all the jokes for uh, uh, Felix, uh, the Carney role, were, were situational and you know, character. They weren't really jokes that you'd tell out. Mm-hmm. You couldn't tell them outside the play and somebody would laugh. They, they had to be dependent on them. So like situation comedies called sitcoms because they the lines only work with the situation, mm-hmm. not in real life, you know. I was so uh, I was so happy in reading the book. I, I work with high school actors and uh, just this past spring, for a one-act play competition, I directed Elaine May's adaptation, which you starred in. Yes, uh, that was wonderful. Of course, I loved Mike and Elaine before I ever met them. And I got to work for both Mike and Elaine as directors. And uh, adaptation was the star of it. There were four actors. was Gabriel Dell, who was one of the original Dead End kids. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Gabe Dell. Uh, and I played every man he ever met in his life. And he played a, a game board with his life on the floor. It was like Monopoly. You have just failed adolescence. You have failed puberty. Go back two spaces. That was typical of her writing. That's a wonderful show. What a wonderful woman she was to work with. You know, just uh, the two of them are like gods to me. But anybody, most people think of them that way. The best improvisers ever. The best witty person ever. They had their own Broadway show two-person show, but I was thrilled to um, be able to work with them. And also I worked with kind of the original Second City Gang when they came to New York and I met Alan Alan Arkin. I just sent him a book today. (laughs) I was sending out some books packaged. That was a great group too. It was was Arkin, it was uh, Paul Sand, Barbara Harris was part of that New York entourage. Yeah. Yeah, they had been a big deal in New York. I'm big deal in Chicago, and they came to New York. First, they did it on Broadway for three months, and they moved to a cabaret in Greenwich Village. But it also included a guy named Severin Darden, who's a hero to anybody who knows the yeah. history of a very, a very kind of a madman comedian. It's a very interesting guy. And Paul Sand, of course. Uh, Richard Libertini was a favorite. I worked with him as well. What led the people at the Children's Television Workshop to reach out to you? Was it because of your your commercial work or acting? What what drew them to Paul Dooley? I wasn't sure, but when I got a call, they said it's the Children's Television Workshop, and I knew that was Sesame Street. 
And uh, <clears throat> I thought maybe they might want me to do a voiceover for Sesame Street because I was just known for the commercials. Why were they calling me? I'm not a Muppet. <laughs> so I got there and there were other, there's a whole group of actors, a whole group of writers. And there was no show yet. They had no name, no title, no cast, nothing but finding ways to teach uh, kids maybe to learn to read. Really getting started off because you can't do it all. But you might get them interested because we use comedy to pull them in, you know. And we were trying to reach inner city kids. That's why they had Cosby and uh, Rita Moreno as the stars. But I always, I'm, I'm a punster. And right away I started naming characters who were basically puns like Fargo North, comma, Decoder, uh, Child Chef Julia Grona. And I made about six or eight of these, and they stood out more than what the other guys were trying to write. A little of it lame, like having two flowers talking and trying to teach you reading. But they were looking. Most kids' shows could look down on the kids. Yeah. So I was writing, of course, of my own, my own personality and my own level of humor. And it was more satire and more wit. But the reader, right away, they realized I should be the guy in charge. And and then, so I created a lot of other characters. And Morgan Freeman was there playing Easy Reader, based on Easy Rider. And uh, there was a lot of stuff. There was a, I had an idea for a scene where a gorilla is being taught to read. And by Judy Grobart, I cast her because she's a second city. And, and she's grown up, but she has a childlike quality. And... Uh, I, I cast all those actors, really. They had a lot of faith in me, these people, because they they wanted me to direct sketches and be on the show and write it. Well, and, and you you put in so much time. A, a year of that was enough because, what was it, well over 130 episodes? Yeah, that was the season. Was that's probably, that's probably uh, nine months. That's There used to be a standard thing is... Uh, it got to be, there used to be 36 episodes, it was a season, then it became 26. Mm. But it's all based on the idea that uh, in vaudeville and in legit theaters, uh, there was no air conditioning up until a certain point. So when the spring came, they closed down vaudeville theaters and people went to the beach or they went swimming or they stayed home or went out on picnics. So because of no air conditioning, the legit theaters and vaudeville closed down. And that's why that season, even on Broadway, Broadway closed down too. So the Broadway season is from uh, uh, September. And then in April or May, they closed, closed down in the old days because of air conditioning. Sometimes you used to put giant, giant pieces of ice in the back with a fan behind them to, as an air conditioner. But the fan drowned out the actors. <laughs> now it's still called the season, you know. Right, right. Opening a show in the summer is not as likely to get an audience as, as during the basic season. But uh, all very interesting. But I, for some reason, I was in love with vaudeville as well as silent movies. Somehow, I really kind of believe maybe I was born at another time. Because <laughs> why am I loving Buster Keaton like he's God? And, and why do I love Baudeville? And, of course, it's partly because that's where he came from. Right, right. Uh, yeah. Breaking Away was such a, a, a career-defining role for you in many ways. Did you know that there was there was magic there when you first read the script for Breaking Away? I did because I never had an audition where <clears throat> I could tell just from 
three or four pages. This guy knows how to make things funny. And that was Steve Tessich. He won the Oscar for it. He, he died a little too early. He was in his 40s. Mm. Uh, but I knew from reading just to, first of all, I knew it was my dad would be an easy way to play it. You know, kind of cranky a little bit. Uh, I made him even more cranky than my real dad. But uh, boy, the, the writing was incredible. I'll give you an example. My first scene, I have a fly swatter. I'm killing, I'm at breakfast, I'm killing flies. He comes in wearing perfume. And I said, what is that? And my wife says, oh, it's Neapolitan sunset. He likes the smell. And I said, well, the flies seem to like it. <laughs> Did and, they... and I could have, I could have got a laugh by saying anything. I could yeah. tell him to take a shower. I could have got a laugh on that. <laughs> Nine things could have been funny. But the idea of bringing it back, you know, well, the flies seem to like it. <laughs> Did they know you spoke Italian? No. No, they, they didn't. But that was my, I love Italian. I learned it and I got A's. I, I just kept taking it more courses because I got A's. I have a good ear for sound and for voices. And I finally had eight, eight semesters. <laughs> so I had a minor in a language I was never going to use. Because when you leave home, you don't encounter other Italians. You're not going to exactly remember. I can speak restaurant Italian. <laughs> uh, Paul's book is called Movie Dad, Finding Myself and my family on screen and off. And, and along with talking about your career, there is the the very powerful story of, of what happened when you lost your kids, became separated from them for a while, and uh, how that informed uh, not just your acting, but obviously impacted your life. And that's it. It's such oh, a it's yeah. such an incredible story of of how you were able to only, find them. Not only normal regular people, but every parent could really. Uh, empathize with what that would mean, just lose them like that, just gone. You know, what's going to happen to them? If they ever got sick, I'm never going to know about it. It was just incredible. But I I don't know, I just persevered through it, but it was a real uh, devastation for me. And I use it in my work when I can, when I need to. Uh, if I'm playing some kind of a part where there's a, a dramatic end of it. But I played a lot of fathers who are humorous and, and fathers who are serious. But uh, I've done about 25 fathers. And I thought the hook of the book, if you will, the thing that would interest publishers is the irony of not having kids and becoming known as a movie dad. It was like, it was such a left-handed kind of thing. Of all people, I'm going to be the dad because I've lost control of the of being a dad to my own kids. There's a wonderful so story uh, in the making of 16 Candles about uh, one scene that Molly Ringwald's mother was pretty uncomfortable with and the adjustment yeah. that you made that worked so well. I rewrote a line that uh, the first one was too bawdy. He said, he patted, his script says he pats his daughter on her behind. And where, where are your panties? Well, how are you going to know that? And why are you patting her on the behind? So I wrote another line, which is harmless, but it got us to the right point. You make sure you wear the pants in the family. And the next shot is a kid holding up the pants. Anthony Michael Hall. Um, the woman whose name is up here on my screen, uh, how did that change your life when you and, when you and Winnie got together? Well, uh, first of all, I 
like a lot of people, I suppose, I, I was in a couple of marriages where unconsciously, more or less, I wasn't committed. You know, I got into a relationship and we got married, but I was never really in love, you know, and uh, said so that's never a good start. So that's going to fall apart at some time. But I met her in an improvisational company, and we were, um, uh, at first I just admired her because she's a, she was a good writer, a good improviser, a good actress, and uh, and she could have been my daughter. She's 26 years younger. But I was attracted to her brain and her talent and her personality because she's very charming, and uh, there's almost nobody who doesn't like my wife. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe Will Rogers, I don't know. <laughs> no, he said, I never met a man I didn't like. Right now, I, anyway, was, I was 55. I was 55 when I had my son, my first. How old were you when Savannah was born? Uh, I think about 58. Oh, yeah, oh, wow. 50. I think about middle 50, 50s. Yeah, like 57 or so. Yeah. I kind of forget well, she it. Was born. <laughs> She was born in 80. We're not good at math. <laughs> uh, she was born in 85. 85, which would make me what? I don't know. Somewhere in my 50s. Yeah. Well, well I, I found out I didn't have kids before I had my son at that age. But uh, I, I found I, certainly I've reached a level of maturity that has allowed me to be, I think, a better dad than I would have been if if we had yeah, had him in my right. in my 30s or 20s, certainly. And I bet you worried at that age of having a son is where would you be when he was grown up or when he was 20, let's say. I worried about that. Oh, that yeah. I, about the time I'm uh, going to kick the bucket that my my daughter might have been just in high school and I'd leave her without, without a father. It turns out I'm living as old as Methuselah <laughs> and uh, 94 now. So she's grown up. She's in her late thirties, <laughs> but it all worked out. But we really out of an admiration really for her talents. Uh, but after a few months, so I was, we were in love and couldn't uh, stay away from each other and got married. And and how much of her success? Now I know the answer to this. I'm just kidding, but I, I her success must directly go to that hut that you built for her to do her writing in. <laughs> <laughs> I think if it wasn't for the lumber, I don't know where she'd be. <laughs> no, it's a little building in our backyard. It's 14 by 14. It's not the Arthur Miller, and I actually built it. <laughs> he did that. Uh, and he wrote Death of a Salesman there, a little cabin in the woods. But uh, no, it, it was really the time when she said, I'd like to have a place to write where I wasn't bothered by the phones all the time. Now she's on the phone every minute. <laughs> but she would go out to this little place that didn't have a phone, and they were more isolated, more free to write. But um, but you always encouraged me. That's the real truth. Oh, she says I encouraged her. That was her real secret. But Yeah, you did. Well, and you've written and performed together. I watched a wonderful video of your, uh, your take on, on love letters that everybody in the world has performed, but... But you guys did yeah. it with post-it notes, and it was brilliant. Yeah, it is good. It's a really funny, what is it, even 10 minutes? Probably it's about, eight yeah, or nine it's minutes. It's about 15 minutes. No, it's a, extremely well-written, and because you don't have to learn the lines, you can just read it, because <laughs> it's a reading thing. 
and doesn't have too many scenery. Two chairs will do it. Maybe a couple of little small tables. And I read in the I wrote in the front of the book. I said, take one post-it and another, and turn them upside down, and stick them together, and then they won't be sticky when you pick them up. There'll be one post-it. But it's been done over a hundred times easily, because you know it's easy to do, and it's also extremely good. Well, it's it's With wonderful. The I, yeah, I enjoyed it. I loved it. A little bit of physical comedy too. A little. Uh, perhaps homage to some of those inspirations at the beginning when you two are waiting to take your seats? <laughs> yeah, that was definitely Paul's idea. Oh, yeah. we. I, she looks at me like, will you pull out my chair? I pull out her chair. She sits down. I go to my chair and look over there. And she has to come back and pull my chair out. <laughs> that was the bit we put in. <laughs> well, the book is... In- we, call it, we call it the junior wicked. Uh, it just keeps plowing along, you know, cause that we get a uh, dollar when they sell a $10 book of it. And many people buy it and don't do it. They just, they're looking around, but we make something like $35 if they perform it. So it's a little engine that could, it just keeps rewarding us in small ways. Well, it's wonderful. But we love that piece. It's really a wonderful piece. Well, I enjoyed reading your book so much. Uh, it's called movie dad, finding myself and my family on screen and off. It's a story of a remarkable career and uh, well, a pretty amazing life that, that we hope just keeps going on and on and on. Uh, Paul, it's, it's wonderful to talk with you again. And, and Winnie, nice to talk with you from a distance as well. Yeah. Thank you so much. It's great to I talk try to, to you. I, I try to keep her at a distance. <laughs> yeah. She's on the end of the couch and I'm over here. <laughs> no, anyway, she's always plugging in. It reminds me of things when I'm talking on a Zoom. She's like a junior Zoomer. (laughs) Well, we appreciate both of you making some time for us uh, today. Uh, Congratulations. Good luck uh, on the book. Hope hope the new year brings you uh, continued good health and happiness to both of you. Yeah. Thank you. You too. And we hope show business comes back. (laughs) That would be nice too. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Paul. Thank you. I could talk to Paul Dooley all day long. Man, is he great. 94, soon to be 95 years old. What a life he's led, and and what a wonderful new memoir, Movie Dad. Finding myself and my family on screen and off. Our thanks to Paul Dooley and uh, to his wife, the equally talented Winnie Holzman as well, for joining us. And and thanks to you for being with us on Downtown the Podcast. It's brought to you every week by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength.